open your Bible to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're picking right up where we left off last Sunday. So if you'd follow along, I'm going to read to us beginning in verse 12. Apostle Paul writes these words. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now that prompts him, as we saw last week, to ask a question. What then, should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having become set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then of the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So a question for us to consider as we get started here this morning is, is your faith in Jesus leading you deeper into freedom? Is your faith in Jesus leading you deeper into freedom? The, the church has always loved to sing about freedom. We were singing about freedom this morning. These words, our chains are gone. Our debt is paid, the cross has overthrown the grave. We're singing about freedom. The church has always loved to sing about freedom because we're called the redeemed. We are called the rescued. It's a designation, it's, it's, a, it's a banner over the church as we are the people who have been set free, who have been liberated. I grew up in church and one of the songs that we used to sing was Satan had me bound, but Jesus set me free. We'd sing it over and over and then modulate it and sing it louder and sing it longer in our church, right? Even much more somberly and during the slavery era in our nation's history, African-American slaves could be heard in the fields and they were singing a song and it was almost had an antiphonal sort of call and response song where they would sing, didn't old Pharaoh get lost, get lost. Didn't old Pharaoh get lost, get lost, get lost, lost in the Red Sea. It was almost a subversive song of hope and the liberating power of God. And really, even in that song, in the language of that song, reaches back to the first hymn in your Bible. What's the first hymn in your Bible? It's Exodus chapter 15. And it was sung by God's people on the far side of the Red Sea. Right? God had closed the sea on their oppressors. And what did they sing? Finally, we're free. 
450 years of being dominated by that army, by Egypt, and finally we're free. They sang the song of Moses, I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider have been thrown into the sea. It was almost like they were singing, didn't old Pharaoh get lost? Lost in the Red Sea. The church has loved to sing about freedom for thousands of years. You read the book of Psalms and you have song after song. Just do a word search in the Psalms on the word oppress or oppression. You're just gonna get hits all throughout the book of Psalms. Psalms that are reaching in the direction of the freedom that God brings. Or Psalms that are praising God for his rescuing power and his mighty acts of redemption in their lives. You, know, you read through those Psalms of oppression and rescue, of freedom and liberation. And they still resonate with us as human beings. In any culture on earth, they still resonate. Why? Because who doesn't want to be free? (laughs) Who doesn't want to be free? I mean, it's it's a deep human ache. We ache, we yearn for freedom. So what about you? Is your faith in Jesus Christ leading you deeper into freedom? And by the way, there is no kind of generic freedom package from God to the world that doesn't include faith in Jesus Christ. The only only way to freedom is in Christ, is trusting in Christ, is repenting and believing in Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he describes the incarnation and the work of Jesus in his ministry and life and death and resurrection, is he says, here's the net effect that Jesus had on the world. He led captivity captive. He came and took us out of Pharaoh, out of sin, out of the reign of death and brought us into new life. So what do we need to know in order to enjoy it? What do we need to know in order to enjoy the freedom that God has for us in Christ? We need to know three things. Number one, sin was your master. Sin was your master. That's where the story really begins. Paul is using slavery language as an analogy. He even uses the word analogy in verse 19. He said, it's an imperfect analogy. You don't push it too hard. So I'm doing it to accommodate your weakness, but I'm trying to get a point across here. But he's using slavery as a metaphor, and he uses that word or some derivation of the word slavery eight times just in our little passage here in Romans 6. And in chapter 6, we're seeing something that we've seen these last couple of weeks, and that is that Paul is talking about two realms. So if you're taking notes, this is in your notes. All of humanity is either in Adam or in Christ. There's no neutral realm. We've seen that, and it features here again, so I think it bears repeating for us to remember that this is, this is a realm thing. In Adam, there's one thing, there's one set of expectations set of outcomes, and then in Christ, there's another set of expectations and another set of outcomes. So something that we talked about last week that I think is important to remember here is the relationship between indicatives and imperatives. Remember, we tried to talk about and even define some of those terms. It's important to repeat it here because this is probably the classic passage in Romans where he's talking about this relationship between indicatives and imperatives. So let's just unpack that for a second because it's important to get these categories right. An imperative is a what? It's a command, right? So that's what an imperative does. It commands. If we wanted to create a ditty sort of uh, that, that would help us memorize the, the relationship between these two things, you might say it this way. Indicatives report the facts. Imperatives call us to act, You say that again, indicatives report the facts, imperatives call us to act. So an indicative statement might be your room is clean. Not asking you to do anything, 
telling you what is. Your room is clean. Now, if I wanted to say that in the form of an imperative, what would I say? Clean your room. So your room is clean is an indicative. Clean your room is an imperative. So look, now we're firing on all cylinders. All right, so, so look at verse 17 and see it here. We're not gonna look at all the indicative statements because there's a lot of them, but verse 17, you used to be slaves, not telling you to do anything. I'm just telling you, I'm reporting the facts. You used to be slaves. Verse 22, you've been set free from sin. Just reporting the facts, not asking you to move a muscle. You've been set free from sin. So there's two indicatives. Look at verse 12 though. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So there's an imperative. Do not offer your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So it's, put this together, right? It's not a contradiction for God to say, sin will not rule over you. Don't let sin rule over you. Indicatives and imperatives, they live together. Matter of fact, if you didn't have indicatives, all you would have is just God barking orders saying, did you do my stuff? Did you do the things? Did you check the boxes? That is not biblical Christian faith. Biblical Christian faith says God has already just by himself done something for us in Christ and now we're situated in a whole new world. Now we're not in Adam, now we're in Christ and God says now that you're in Christ, now that you're in Christ, I got freedom for you. I'm calling you to do these things. I'm calling you, don't offer yourself to sin. You worked for him long enough. Don't show up to work. Don't clock in anymore. He's not your master anymore. So these imperatives are grounded in new things that God has done, indicatives of gospel grace. That's really important to grasp. So notice Paul is using a literary device that we use today, right? It's personification. So he's personifying sin throughout this passage, personifying death. Sin is sort of like spoken of in this text as an overlord. Do not let sin, capital S, like it's a proper name. Do not let sin reign. And that hearkens to some things that we've studied in these past couple of weeks, that, that this text, this passage in Romans divides the world into two humanities. There's a humanity in Adam, there's a humanity in Christ, and it's almost as though Adam rules through an executive. Adam has his, uh, his fixer, his, his get-or-done administrator, and that administrator is sin. Sin governs all who are in the realm of Adam, which means in the realm of Adam where sin reigns, our lives are controlled by, by deception, by pride, by hypocrisy, by lust, that's, that's normal, that's, that, that's Tuesday. That's just what you do naturally, nobody forces you around to do it, it's just what you show up to work and that's what you do, it's what we have been doing, it's what we do in Adam. And then taken out of Adam and in Christ, sin doesn't reign. Jesus has an executor who reigns over this realm and what's that? Grace reigns. And at the end of chapter five, grace reigns through righteousness, which is just another way of saying grace gets stuff done. Grace's reign is changing people. It's transforming them from the inside out so that now we are becoming righteous. We are looking more and more like our God. We're reflecting his image, reflecting his character in ever-increasing ways. You've got this, this picture of two entirely different realms of existence, which says what? What's the upshot of all this? Here's the bottom line. 
There are no autonomous people in the world. There, there's no anteroom between the realm of Adam and the realm of Christ. You're either under the power of sin or you're under the power of God. So the question isn't whether you're serving a master, it's which master are you serving? You are serving a master. Which one is it? And it's a toggle switch. It's not a dimmer pack, right? Jesus said, he walks up to a rich guy and he says, so who's it gonna be? Me or the money? Because you can't worship both. You can't have me and your favorite God. It's gonna be me or mammon. Jesus says, those who are for me, you're either for me or you're against me. It's a toggle switch. It's, 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 I'm gonna draw one line in the world. You're gonna either be on this side or you're gonna be on that side. There's no neutral space. The next point is this. Sin's ambition is to rule and enslave us. So people in the ancient world in the first century would, would sometimes sell themselves into slavery to avoid utter financial disaster. It was one of your options. You certainly didn't want to do it. But if you were backed up against a wall and desperate, you could sell yourself into slavery to avoid total ruin and starvation, right? So that's sort of the, the, the cultural backdrop that Paul is employing to deliver this truth that he's after in Romans 6. You can see it in verse 16. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves, if you present yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, and now you gotta show up to work, right? You present yourselves as obedient slaves, you're the slaves now of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Well, what is Paul getting at practically for the life of the Christian? He's getting at this idea. Even though our union with Jesus breaks the jurisdiction of sin. Sin doesn't have the right to rule over the believer anymore because sin's rule has been broken in Christ. That, however, doesn't mean you can't still hand the keys to sin. You can't still go back to living the way that you did before you knew Jesus. You can't live as if you're still in Adam. Look, that is very much still a possibility. And Paul is saying, don't become slaves again. Not anymore, not for you. That's your past, right? You were baptized, you were washed, you died to your old life, you came up a new person in Christ. Don't become slaves again. And the, the, the hypothetical there is, by yielding ourselves to sin consistently and over time, we can become slaves of sin again. F. Scott Fitzgerald, the, the famous and well-known author, he, he had one primary demon that he wrestled with all of his life, and that demon was alcoholism. And he said, I'll tell you how alcoholism comes into my life. He said, there's a sequence, and here's what he wrote. He said, first you take a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes you. First you take a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink tells, takes you. How many even Christians in this room are familiar with that story, can tell a similar story, what seemed like a one-off indiscretion, and next thing you know, it sinks its hooks in your flesh, and it's dragging you down the highway, and you don't know where we're going now, where are we gonna end up now, because now I feel like I'm trapped. I feel like I'm in Adam, where sin reigns because it feels like sin's calling the shots at this point. It becomes this repeated pattern which gives birth to a habit. Habit gives birth to character. It tweaks us. 
And that's what Paul is warning against. You know, John Bunyan's great allegory of the Christian life, the Pilgrim's Progress. It's got tons of just stories about how do the biblical truths that we read about in, in the Bible, how do they relate to the way that we live our lives? So at one point, the main character named Christian, he, he walks into the house of the interpreter and he sees a man who's trapped in an iron cage and he walks up to the interpreter who the interpreter represents the Holy Spirit and Christian says, tell me what's the deal with the guy who's in the cage? And the interpreter says, why don't you go ask him why he's in the cage? So Christian walks up to the guy in the cage and he says, what are you doing in the cage? And the guy says, so I was a Christian and I followed Jesus and I obeyed his commands and I walked with God. And he says, well, then how'd you get in there? And the man says, I neglected to watch. I loosed any restraint that had been on my lusts and gave them free reign. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. And that's why I'm in this cage. Basically, he was saying to Christian, he was saying, um, I didn't use the means of grace. So the means of grace is an important phrase in church history. Means of grace is basically church history and theologians' way of just saying that God in his word says, there are some places that I want to meet you and you come meet me there, I promise I'll make you stronger. So it's not this sort of nebulous, how are you going to grow and how are you going to gain freedom? It's God saying, I'll meet you here and here and here. Let's meet there regularly and you're going to be changing as a process, as a result of that process. A book was written a number of years ago by David Mathis called The Habits of Grace. It's a really helpful book because it's a really simple book. And he just says, how do you grow in Christ? You need God's ear, God's voice, and God's people. Very simple. You need God's ear, God's voice, and God's people. And by that, he just meant you need God's ear. You need to talk to him. You need to be in constant conversation with the Lord, confessing your sins, owning up, asking for help, asking for power, asking for truth and wisdom. So you're bending his ear in prayer, but not just his ear, his voice. He's talking. You're not the only one talking. He's talking to you. He's in your ear. How? Through the word of God. So you need to work your Bible is basically what Matthew was saying. That's a means of grace. And not only do you need God's ear and God's voice, you need God's people. You need comrades. You need brothers and sisters who are saying, I'm telling you, you're not falling behind. Not on my watch. We are going to persevere together. You and me both. If I fall back, you're picking me up. If you fall back, I'm picking you up. And we're going to make it to the finish line together. You need the church. You need God's ear, God's voice, and God's people. And the, the guy in the cage is basically saying, I had everything and I just didn't use it. Paul says our members were weapons of unrighteousness. Our members being, the, the idea there being our bodies, our natural capacities were weapons, interesting word there, weapons of unrighteousness. So in the, in the movie, uh, The Avengers, you might be familiar, Tony Stark, he discovers that technology that he had designed is being created, is being used for destructive ends. He's in another part of the world and these weapons just absolutely wreaking havoc in the other part of the world. And he sees on the name, he sees his own name, Stark Enterprises, on those weapons. And he's basically saying, how'd my stuff get over here to get used in this way? I didn't design it for this. Why is it being used in this way? Look, before Christ, that's kind of what Paul is talking about here. God made us. God designed us in his image and he gave us 
technology, hands, feet, hearts, lips, intellect, natural capacities, financial savvy, whatever it might be, God has wired you up to serve him in the world and we're using his tech for destructive ends. His tech for SIN industries, right? We're pressing it into the service of self-glorification, your verbal skills before you met Jesus, your professional abilities, your artistic talents, all pressed into the service of self-glorification. That's why it's such a helpful hymn that was written, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. It's basically the hymn writer saying, let's repurpose all this technology for him now. And it's just going one after another. Let's just, let's just start with our lips Take my lips, take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Just walking through, can all of this, which I've been using for myself and for the pursuit of sin, can it all be repurposed to be used for God, the one who gave me this in the first place? Consecrate me anew, O God. Flows right out of this text. Maybe was the source and inspiration of that hymn is verse 13. Look at verse 13. And so he begins with what not to do. Do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But, here's an indicative, as those who are alive from the dead, imperative, offer yourselves to God and all your technology, all your parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. But verse 13 is such a critical verse for Christians to hold on to. You could think about it as verse 13 is highway 13 and it leads to freedom. Take I-13 to freedom. You know, anti, antinomian theology, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, basically tells Christians because you're not under the law, you can do whatever in the world you want which is precisely the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is teaching. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 15. What then? Should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. We said that that's the strongest language he could find in the first century. It's in a thousand years, no. No way. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, so now you gotta work, now you gotta clock in. You're slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Friend, Christian friend, don't buy the lie that God is unconcerned about your growth in practical holiness. It matters. Our daily lives the pursuit of godliness matters. Why? Because sin wants to rule you again. Sin is always like ready to pick up the phone and continue the conversation where it left off before. You know, sin says, you broke up with me, but I think you miss me, don't you? Right? That's kind of how sin, it's, it's luring us. Sin talks that way. It says, look and lust and live. Sin says, you should be stark raving mad about the sins of all the people who aren't you. That's how sin talks. Sin says, obey your thirst. Sin says, you only live once. Sin says, messing around with your girlfriend isn't the same as going all the way. It lures us. And, and here's the thing is, if our minds as Christians are steeped in the word of God, right, so not just God's ear, but God's voice. If his voice is in our ear, we know all that stuff is lies. God never talks like that. Why? 
because his agenda is freedom. Not for sin's hooks to get set in our flesh and drag us down the highway who knows where. That's not his agenda. So learn to discern the voice that's in your ear. Sin was your master. Second, God intervened. God intervened. There have been many great German hymn writers over the centuries. One of the I think one of the greatest German hymn writers is, is largely lost to history. His name was Johann Hermann, and uh, he ministered during the times of the Thirty Years' War. He was deeply acquainted with suffering and affliction and danger, and, uh, and his hymns feel like it. feels like he's living in the cauldron of affliction. And at one point, he writes a, a beautifully poetic work in which he is speaking, as it were, to Christ as Christ is hanging on the cross in his passion. And here's, here's the question that he asks looking at Christ's suffering there. He says, who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? And then he answers, alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. And then, he says in the next verse, lo, the good shepherd for the sheep is offered. The slave hath sinned and the son hath suffered. For our atonement, while we nothing heeded, God interceded. Christian, you didn't make the first move in your salvation. God did. God's grace, God's initiative is what began the whole story of freedom that he's leading you into. While we nothing heeded, God interceded. While we were disobedient, if you want to use biblical language, Isaiah 53, while we were like sheep, were going astray, God laid the iniquities of us all upon the Redeemer, Jesus it's glorious truth, the initiative of God. God interceded. God did something. He intervened in our lives. Look, by all means, our conversion is important. Our response to the gospel is utterly important. And it even looms here in the text in verse 17. Look at it. Although you used to be slaves of sin, you did what? You obeyed. That was the right move. You saw and heard the message of the gospel and you said, I'll take that. You said, that's the story I want. And you repented and believed. You obeyed from the heart. That pattern of teaching to which you were, here's passive language, handed over. Who handed you over to be impressionable to the gospel? God did. <laughs> he handed you over to that form of teaching. That's glorious truth. If you want to use the Old Testament language of the prophets, it's that God saw your stony heart and he saw you would just keep resisting. You would just keep slamming your head against a brick wall because the stubbornness was baked in. And so God said, I'm going to take your stony heart and I'm going to take it out and I'm going to put this fleshy, responsive heart in, and suddenly you're going to see how great it is that I've saved you. You were handed over to the teaching. That's in your notes. You were handed over, meaning placed by God under the rule of his word. 
Freedom is discovered when God the Holy Spirit hands your mind over to the influence of biblical truth. It's where freedom is discovered. The Christian cannot discover true freedom apart from glad-hearted submission to the word of God. Indicatives and imperatives. Right, there's this dance of indicatives and imperatives in our text. Indicatives are reminding us of what God has done for us in Christ, and the imperatives are saying, live in the good of what I've already done for you in Christ. Don't give up ground. I've given you a new vantage point. Don't give up this ground. Do not let sin reign over you. And in that way, Romans 6 says, great news, believer, sin will never be your master again. And then Romans 6 says, see to it. See to it. Sin was your master. God intervened. Sin will never be your master again. But see to it. Where do we get that? Look at verse 19. For just as you, you were active in sin, you were active in Adam, just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now, here's the seed to it, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. Sanctification just being a big word in the Bible that means that through the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, we can be more and more dead to sin and more and more alive to righteousness. That's what sanctification means. Here's what it means for every follower of Jesus in this room. You have a new master whose service is actually liberating. You are called to serve your new master, Jesus, and his service is liberating. This has profound implications for the life of every individual Christian here. It has profound implications for us as a community of believers. Let me just ask you the question. Why would we want a Christianity that stops short of freedom? Why would we want Christianity as a concept, as a, a notion, when the only Christianity there is, the genuine article, real Christianity, offers you freedom, Follow me down this highway and you're going to be more and more free. John Baker, the um, founder of Celebrate Recovery, died last week. His ministry would eventually spread across 35,000 churches in the United States would use the ministry that he had begun and it would lead to an impact of over 7 million lives impacted by his ministry. And you ask the question, why did he start this ministry years and years ago, he was a Christian man and he said, I'm battling against something that's way too strong for me. And it's, in, in his particular case, it was the, the struggle with alcoholism. And he said, here was, here was my problem, is he said, I needed Jesus and I needed honest community and I couldn't find a place where I could get both of them. Even in the church, I couldn't find a place where I could get both of them. He said, his words, at my men's group, so in church, at my men's group, I couldn't talk about my struggle. At AA, I couldn't talk about my Savior. And he said, I needed a place where I could talk about my struggle and look at my Savior. So I started Celebrate Recovery. Glad he did it. Sad it was necessary. Right, well, when did we get the idea that church exists for us just to sit together and pretend that we've got it all together? When did that become church, where we could talk about the Savior, but we couldn't talk about the struggle. 
the, the day that Baker passed away last week, I went and I was trying to look for videos so I could watch him doing his thing and sharing the hope that he had. And I found a video, a very recent video, I think he died at the age of 70, a very recent video where he's talking to a live stream audience of thousands of people who are just, they're tired of being enslaved. And he just looks at his, his computer camera and he's just talking to that camera. And here's his opening words. He says at the beginning, he introduces himself and he talks about his struggle. And then he says, I want to read you one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Isaiah 43, verse 19, where God says, this is what the Lord says. Look, I'm about to do something new. I have already begun. Do you not see it? And when he set it up that way, it was not hard for me to imagine seven million people on the other side of the screen saying, tell me more. Tell me about this, this new thing that God might begin in my life. It's powerful. My sister Lori, um, she grew up, you know, we grew up in church, church world, and she would sing special music on Sunday mornings, you know, while the offering plate's going around. You, you set up the song, you're holding the mic cord, you cue the sound man in the back. This is the whole deal, right? And uh, because of our time and place in church history, the songs that were being sung were Amy Grant. Like, she wanted to be Amy Grant. Uh, so she was just rocking Grant song after Grant song. And we, she must have sung Father's Eyes a thousand times. <laughs> and and Father's Eyes is basically a song where Amy Grant is just saying, I want to see the world the way you see the world. I'm, I'm tired of seeing the world the way I see the world. I want to see the world the way you see the world. Which then begs the question, biblically speaking, how does God see the world? Well, we know how God sees the world because God came into the world, Jesus Christ. The Son of God came into the world and you pull up alongside Jesus Christ in John chapter eight and you say, what do you see, Jesus? What do you see when you look at this world, and the answer that Jesus gives in John chapter eight should induce a response in the church that moves us toward the world with compassion. Not outrage, not anger, because when you come up alongside Jesus in John eight and you say, Jesus, tell me what you see when you look at the world, you know what he says? I see slaves. I see slaves. This whole planet is a massive prison camp of slaves. They don't have any power to overcome what's up against them. I see slaves. He says, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin, and everybody in this house is committing sin. So everybody here is a slave. No wonder it was prophesied in advance, centuries in advance of the arrival of Jesus, that Jesus would come and he would have a ministry that would particularly resonate with a certain group of people, namely captives because the prophet said when Jesus comes when Messiah comes on the scene you'll know he's there because everywhere he goes he'll be setting the captives free that's how you know he's here because Jesus lives this perfect life he dies on the cross he rises again from the dead and then he says to a world filled with slaves he says if you want freedom you need to come with me Everybody who wants freedom, I'm your guy because I'm leading captivity captive. If you haven't heard yet, I'm leading people into freedom. Will you come to freedom? Will you come 
to Christ and know the freedom that's found only in him. Look, I love how this passage ends in verse 23 because it shows you the arrows sailing over to the end of our lives. The wages of sin is death. Absolute polarized outcomes, right? But the gift of God is eternal life. That is, those who go after sin are gonna die and be condemned. But those who receive God's grace in Jesus Christ, you get to live Freedom's gonna write your story to the end of time. In Christ, we have a new life now and a glorious future awaiting.